You can turn to Psalm 16. If you haven't turned there already, it's on page 538, and we will read it in just a moment. Psalm 16. How do you know that God will bring you through life and through death and into eternity? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What gives you confidence that God will keep you to the end? What gives you assurance? Maybe you walked into church this morning and you are flying high. Your, your confidence isn't shaky. Your confidence is strong. You're sure that God is going to protect you and keep you to the end, and maybe that's where you're at right now. Or maybe you walked into the church this morning and your confidence is shaky. Maybe you're doubting God's goodness to you. You're discouraged and confused. Maybe you walked into church this morning and you have zero confidence that you are going to make it to the end to be with Jesus. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Well, regardless of whether this is a difficult morning or a good morning for you, I can tell you this, losing your faith doesn't happen overnight. Losing your faith doesn't happen overnight. You don't just wake up some morning and find yourself far from God. Losing your faith is like a piece of driftwood along a lazy river. It's moving so slowly that you don't even realize that it's happening. But here's the deal. You will never just drift towards God. You will never drift towards more holiness. You will never drift towards a bigger faith in God. You can't coast towards more affection for God or coast towards more spiritual growth. If you're drifting, you will drift away from God. And that's because that's where the current is going. So if you want to keep your faith, if you want to be confident that God's going to keep you to the end, you've got to swim upstream against the currents. So this psalm, Psalm 16, it shows us a man, David, who swims upstream. It shows us someone who has confidence that God will keep him to the end. So let's read Psalm 16. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad And my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with your joy 
in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are not looking for you to do an ordinary work in our hearts and in our lives. We're coming to you looking for supernatural work. We're coming to you begging you to move in our hearts and to cause us to change. We're, we're calling on you now, Lord, to speak to us. Father, we, we come into this place with so many different cares and concerns and And we're so thankful that you, Spirit, you know where we are at. You know our burdens, you know our cares, you know our joys. So please speak now, Father, to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, did you notice in Psalm 16 where David starts in this psalm and where David ends in this psalm? You notice it starts in verse 1 with, Keep me safe, O God. Now, normally in Psalms, uh, in, in Psalms where David is crying out to God, he says, save me, O God, where, when there's enemies lurking around. But here he says, keep me safe because I take refuge in you. He's, he's essentially saying, continue to keep me safe. Preserve me as you have been preserving me. That's his cry, his petition, his prayer request in verse 1. So he feels some security because he's taking refuge in God, but he's asking for more security. You know, one of my favorite uh, childhood memories is uh, I was in seventh grade, so I was, uh, what, 12 years old, maybe 13, and I was reading for the first time the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I was under, this is how I read the Lord of the Rings when I was in seventh grade. I was under a blanket and my flashlight out and the book open, and uh, I was reading, and I remember two or three scenes in particular. If you've watched the movies or read the book, you probably remember these scenes too. And one of the scenes I remember clearly as I was under the blanket with the flashlight open, it's the Battle of Helm's Deep. It's a great battle in the second book, in the second movie, The Two Towers. And there was a, 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 a few hundred men defending this keep, Helm's Deep, from the oncoming enemies. Now imagine for a moment that one of the soldiers decided to stand out in the field all alone, waiting for the thousands of enemies to come, and imagining him shouting, shouting out there all alone in the field, King, save me. Save me. Preserve me. Keep me safe. But he fails to run into the fortress that the king has built for him to be kept safe. That's what we do sometimes, don't we? We're out in the field. We're out all alone, and we're crying out to God, keep me safe. But we don't run into the fortress that God has built for us. And that's why I think we often slowly drift from God. But David, David is in the fortress as the day of trouble is coming. And he's crying out to his king, keep me safe. That's where he starts. Where does he end up in this psalm? Well, he ends with a declaration that he will be safe in the afterlife. Now look at, um, look at verse 7 and verse 8. He starts by saying, keep me safe. Now look at verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. So somewhere between verses 1 and verses 8, his confidence has grown, and he believes that God will keep him safe and secure 
in this lifetime. Well, then we get to verse 9 and 10, and his confidence has grown even more. Look at verse 9 with me. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So not just in life, but through death, David believes God will keep him safe as well. So David moves from keep me safe to you will keep me safe in this life. And then finally he lands on you will keep me safe even after I die. So our question as we began this morning, how do we know that we will make it through life and death and into eternity? How do we have the confidence that David has here? Well, that's exactly what this psalm is about. And what we see in this psalm is a portrait of a man who's not drifting, but has significant confidence in his God. Let me give you the main idea of the sermon. I'm going to give you a sentence. This is the main idea of the sermon. I'm going to say it twice because it's a, it's a bit of a long sentence. Here's the main idea. God will bring you safely through life and death and into his eternal pleasures if, it's a big if, if he truly is your Lord, your portion, and your counselor. I'll say that one more time. God will bring you safely through this life and through death and into his everlasting pleasure if he is your Lord, your portion, and your counselor. So I want to unpack that statement for you this morning. Let me give you three marks of a person whom God keeps. Three marks of a person whom God keeps. The first mark, we see this in verses 2 through 4. The first mark is loyalty. We see loyalty wrapped up in David's confession, you are my Lord. You see that in verse 2? The word Lord there is literally Adonai, which means uh, sovereign one. Sovereign one. He who rules and reigns and judges over all things. It, it conjures up images of you know, kings and vassals, lords and their subjects, masters and their servants. And David says, apart from this ruler's provision, apart from this rule that God provides, there is no good thing that David receives. So this is not a harsh rule. This is a benevolent, sovereign rule. Now notice it's not just a general statement that David is making. It's intensely personal. He says, you are my Lord. So the functional authority in David's life as he wakes up Monday morning, as he goes to bed Wednesday evening, the, the functional authority in, in his life is God. You know, he's not just trumpeting the, the Sunday school answer of, okay, who's the Lord of your life? It's Jesus. No, it, it's his actual functional master. He actively lives under God's rule. God isn't a genie in a bottle. God isn't a, a Santa, Santa Claus granting our every wish on, on the basis of whether we're a good or bad girl. God's not a crutch, someone we can ignore when things are going well, but then we run to him when we've got a limp. God has laid claim to us. We are his, not the other way around. So if you don't want to drift whether it's wartime in your life or peacetime in your life, then you've got to settle this issue in your heart. 
I wonder, brothers and sisters, has this been settled in your hearts? Who is the functional authority in your life? Is it God? David fleshes this idea of loyalty out in verses 3 and 4. Let me read verse 3 for you. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. So David is saying, if God is your master, then the things that God loves, the things that God delights in will also be the things that you love and the things that you delight in. You know, when you take a new job and you commit yourself to a, a new company or a new boss, you know, it, it would be strange if you didn't learn to love your coworkers. You know, when you uh, commit yourself to the Boston Red Sox, it would be strange if you didn't love the players and the fans, even the obnoxious fans. You know, you, you find yourself defending even the obnoxious fans, right? Well, when God is your master, then his children become your delight. And that means, church, that of all the things that you should be interested in and of all the things that should, you, you should give your attention to, that you should find your pleasure and joy in, at the very top of the list should be the people in these pews, should be the people in your growth group or in your Sunday school class. John Calvin's comments on this verse are really helpful. He says, We ought to highly value and esteem the true and devoted servants of God, and then to regard nothing as of greater importance than to connect ourselves with them. So that's what we've kind of already talked about. But listen to this. He says, This we will actually do if we wisely reflect in what true excellence and dignity consists of. And do not allow the vain splendor of the world and its deceitful pomps to dazzle our eyes. Listen, there are some, there are some really strange people in this church. There's some, there's some weird people in this church. And I'm one of them. And so are you. Everybody in this room is probably weird to someone else in this room. And that's Okay. Let's just be okay with that. And it's so tempting to ignore these strange people in our church because our eyes are dazzled, to use Calvin's words, with the vain splendor of this world. We look at each other through worldly lenses. But Calvin instructs us to wisely reflect on true excellence and dignity. Who are the people of virtue? Who are the people who are filled with grace and truth and love? Who are the people who bear a striking resemblance to Christ? Not because, you know, of their personal charm or the, the force of their personality. You're drawn to them, but because of their humility, because of their love, because of their grace. Who are those people in this church? Do you see them? Do you know them? And most importantly, do you find delight in those people? So first we see that loyalty to God means affection for God's people. But as we look at verse 4, loyalty to God means something else. Let's read verse 4. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. So another aspect of loyalty to God is rejecting idol worship. Pagan worship in ancient times included, uh, you know, idols that were carved out of stone and, and marble and, and wood, and these idols, they represented various gods. 
You know, so there would be the God of agriculture and the God of fertility and the God of love and so forth. And so people would literally run down their streets to the local temple to pay homage to their gods in order to gain benefit when they were in need. But here David flips the script on them and he says, listen, they, they actually don't gain benefit. In fact, it's just the opposite, he says. They end up multiplying their sorrows if they run after these other gods, these other masters, these other lords. Now, we don't necessarily carve out idols of stone and marble and wood, and I I don't think any of you have recently sacrificed an animal uh, to a, a local deity. However, we have different masters, don't we? We have different lords that we are tempted to serve. We bring different kinds of sacrifices to these lords and these masters and these idols of the heart. What sorts of things, brothers and sisters, consume you? What sorts of things are you obsessing over in your life? Where does your money go to? That often reveals the idols of our heart. What do your extreme emotions, maybe of anger or fear, what do those extreme emotions reveal about what's really important to you? These kinds of things are the idols in our lives. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your social identity, making sure you are liked. Maybe it's sports. It's something that tempts us here in the Boston area. Maybe it's success. You will do whatever it takes to be successful in this life. And do these things consume you at a level that is unhealthy and unhelpful? You may not sacrifice an animal on these altars, but maybe you do sacrifice your family on these altars. Maybe you sacrifice your morals and your integrity on these altars. Maybe you sacrifice your relationship with God. Can you think of your idols? Can you think of one or two things that consume you? Well, David reminds us here in Psalm 16, verse 4, that running after these idols will not satisfy us. In fact, they will demand more and more. You can never give enough to these idols. No sacrifice is enough to please these idols of our heart. And it will only heap more and more sorrow onto your life and mine. Look again at verse 4. Look at the last half of verse 4. David says, I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Now, what does David mean by that? Well, imagine for a moment one of these pagan worshipers. Imagine his crops are dying and, you know, the pressure's on because he's got to feed his family. And so what does he do? He grabs a, a choice goat and he runs down the street to his local temple. And he walks into this temple and he says a few prayers and the priest hands him a cup and hands him a knife, and he, he, he cuts the throat of this goat, and he grabs that cup, and he, he, gets, he collects some blood into that cup. And then, in an act of allegiance, he holds his cup up to this idol, and he says, to Molech, and then he drinks the blood. And this was an act of allegiance in ancient times, to these ancient gods. And David says here, I will not do this. 
I will not drink these blood offerings and speak the name of these gods on my lips because I have one master, and it's not these gods. And as New Testament Christians, we ought not do this either because we lift a different cup, don't we? The cup of the new covenant filled with the blood of the Lamb. We lift this cup and we speak a different name. We speak the name of Jesus when we come to the table. And this is our act of allegiance. And so as you consider your idols, can you say with David, we will not lift another cup of sacrifice and blood to another God. In fact, those of us who worship at the altar of of family or worship at the altar of success or worship at the altar of work, and then we come to church to lift the cup of the new covenant, we are not only um, being two-faced, but we are defaming the blood sacrifice of Jesus. May it not be so, brothers and sisters. May we only lift one cup. May we only speak one name, the name of Jesus. This is the first mark. Fierce loyalty, allegiance to God. If you want to make it to the end, you've got to be loyal. The second mark is contentment. We see this in verses 5 and six. Now, the first line in verse 5, it's actually a bad translation if you have your pew Bible in front of you. Let me give you a better translation. It's, it's really frustrating because if you read verse 5 the way it's written in, in your pew Bible, you're going to miss a very important truth. So let me give you my translation for verse 5. The first line says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You see how that's different from your pew Bible? You alone are my portion and my cup. So David is declaring his radical contentment in God, in God alone. Now, these verses need some background to make sense. Let me read these verses just to refresh our memory, and then I'll give you some background. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, in the Old Testament, there is a story about the conquest of the uh, promised land. And this land was divided among the 12 tribes of Israel, and it was divided by casting lots. But one tribe didn't get any land. It was the tribe of Levi, the priestly order. Now, that sounds like a pretty raw deal. No land. But listen to how God viewed this situation This is from Numbers chapter 18. God said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. So once again, there's the raw deal. But listen to what else God says to Aaron. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. I want you to see two things here in these verses about contentment. The first thing is this. God is our portion. God is what we need. David is saying, you, God, you gave me you, and that's enough. And so if there was a a massive feast laid out before a starving David, and he was asked to choose between God and this feast, David would choose God. And if there were all the riches of the world put before David just in reach of his grasp, 
David would choose God. And if the kingdoms of the world, all the the powers and authority and influence of the world, they were before David, and he looked at it all, what would he do? He He would choose God. Because for David, God is enough. God is not only supreme, David's master, God is sufficient. He's all we really need. Now, that's not to say we don't need basic things like food and clothing and uh, friendships and so forth. Of course, we need those things. What David is saying here is don't forget about the giver of those good things. Don't forget that Jesus is our ultimate good, our ultimate treasure, far above all other lesser goods. Some of you right now are dealing with difficult circumstances in your life. Maybe it's difficult circumstances with your children or with your job or with a relationship. I know some of you have cancer and other chronic illnesses. And as a pastor, it's been my privilege, along with the other pastors and elders, to to walk alongside you as you battle for faith. And let me tell you, I am so impressed with the way many of you are responding as you walk through these trials. Because you have been saying to me, your pastor, God is my portion. God is what I need. God is enough. What a great example. What a great example to all of us who are waiting for the day when trouble hits our lives. Will we be able to confess with David, you are my portion. When our job is suddenly taken away, when our spouse suddenly passes away, When a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter leaves for a far-off country, will we be able to say with David, God, you are my portion and my cup? The second thing we we can say about contentment is that God has apportioned a certain life for us. God is our portion, but he has also apportioned a certain life for us. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Now, remember, again, the land was divided among the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were split up by casting lots. But who was over the casting of lots is God himself. And so God apportioned parts of this land to his people. And that means some people got more land than others. Some people got more stuff than others. David says here, you know what, wherever these boundary markers are, wherever this field is apportioned for me, wherever it is, whatever it is, I love it. I'm okay with it. I'm content with it. Where has God set the boundary markers of your life? Is it a certain salary with a certain job? a certain spouse with certain children, or maybe no spouse and no children? Is it painful circumstances or is it happy circumstances? Is it harsh realities or is it good realities for your life? What are the things that God has apportioned for you in this life? God is the great land distributor, He apportions as he sees fit. He has hundreds, thousands of talents, and we don't know why 
I get three talents and you get five talents and you get 17 talents. We don't know why. We don't know why some people make a lot of money and other people don't. We don't know why some are emotionally healthy and stable and other people struggle with chronic depression and anxiety and fear. Why do these things happen? We don't know why some, cap, uh, some couples have babies. It seems like they're just coming out of their ears. <laughs> While other couples struggle just to have one kid. Why does this happen? We, we don't know why some, some African-American men are still being racially profiled in parts of this country. Why is that happening? We don't know why... Single moms have to work three jobs just to hold whole things together, just to pay the bills. Why is this the lot of my life? And don't think that David's life was perfect either. I mean, you read First and Second Samuel, and David's life was, was hard at times. But the Christian, regardless of the lot that God has ordained for him, will remain content. They will say, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Because God has set these markers. God has apportioned my field. And my God is good. He's good. Jeremiah Burroughs in his Puritan classic, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he said this, Christian contentment is that sweet, Inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Oh, that we would be content in God. Oh, that we would be content in God's lot for us. If you want to be a person who doesn't drift, if you want to be a person who God keeps till the end, You need to discover how to be content. That's the second marker. Here's the third, and I'll be quick on this one. Communion. Communion. Let me read verses 7 and 8. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So what we see here is a picture of David who loves and enjoys and praises God for his daily communion with his God. God is counseling him so well during the daytime that even at at night, the words of the Lord instruct his heart. And God is always at his right hand. That's a a picture in ancient times. It it brings up a picture of someone who's at battle at a right hand with us to support us, ready to jump to our aid. And so God is our counselor. He's our instructor. He's our warrior. And the point here is that God is with us. He is with us. Think about a good professional counselor. That's what they do, right? They are there with you. Some of you have maybe visited a professional counselor. All their attention is on you. They aren't moving away. They're not looking past you as you're talking. A good counselor, they're not searching for something more interesting to do. That would be bizarre. They're giving themselves to you for that hour. They're ready to support you and help you and guide you. But here's the deal. For you to really enjoy God's sweet presence in your life, 
you've got to open up this book. This is where it is, right here, this book. This is where we sense the Spirit speaking to us. This is where we get the instructions we need. This is where we, want, we feel loved by God. We feel cherished by God. This book is the place of communion. And so you shut this book, and you're really shutting off your fellowship with God. So brothers and sisters, how serious are you about spending time in God's presence? Is that a commitment that you are making? Listen, it's so easy for me to schedule spending time with my friends and family and and be disciplined and focused about so many other things. But what about enjoying God's presence by reading this book? Are you drinking deeply of this fountain? Do you hunger and thirst after God? Do you crave to be in God's presence just like you may crave to be in the presence of a friend or a spouse? Learn to develop a hunger, an appetite for God's presence, which is acutely felt as you open up this book. You don't want to drift from God. You don't want to drift from God's fortress. Get into the book. Learn to listen to him, and he will counsel you well. So, three marks of a person whom God keeps through life and death, loyalty, contentment, communion. And now let's read David's conclusion. You notice it's marked by that first word in verse 9, therefore. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. I'm going to stop there for a moment. Remember, he's moved from keep me safe in verse 1 to I am safe in verse 7 and 8 to now finally in verse 9 and 10, I will always be safe. So David is confident that God would eventually raise him from the dead and give him eternal life. That's what he's saying in these verses. But even though David was right in his assurance, he was missing something. He didn't know the whole story. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 13. I want you to see how the Apostle Paul interpreted Psalm chapter 16. Keep a finger on Psalm 16 because we'll go back there, but Acts chapter 13, I'm going to read in verses 32. This is a, in the middle of his message to some people who didn't know Jesus. Acts 13, it's on page 1092 if you're looking at your pew Bible. And Paul's preaching the good news. Listen to this, verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, Old Testament, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. So the fulfillment of what God promised is completed It's brought to completion in Jesus, in particular in his resurrection. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Verse 34, the fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Now watch verse 35. So it is stated elsewhere. You will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead 
did not see decay. Wow. Do you see the Apostle Paul's logic in that section? Here's his logic. It's clear. David died. David was buried. And let's, let's face it, David's body saw decay. And so Psalm 16.10, flip back to Psalm 16. Psalm 16.10 can't be about David in an ultimate sense because according to Paul, it's actually about Jesus. These verses speak about Jesus' resurrection. God hasn't abandoned Jesus' body to the grave. God will not let Jesus' body see decay because he has raised him to new life. And how does that connect with our question that we asked at the beginning? How do I know for sure I will be kept safe? Well, the ultimate answer is that Jesus was kept safe by his Father. And those who have faith in Jesus will also be kept safe. Do you hear that message, brothers and sisters? What, what an incredible encouragement to us. It's not your faith. It's not your efforts. It's not your spiritual accomplishments Your loyalty to God, your contentment in God, your communion with God, those things are important. They demonstrate that you are the real deal. But they are not the grounds for which God will keep you. The final guarantee of our eternal safety is Jesus' resurrection. And that's why we can hope today. I want to look at one last verse, verse 11. You know, in many ways, a whole sermon can be written just uh, on verse 11. Let me read it to you and make just a couple comments, then we'll close. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with your joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see, safety isn't the end game for the Christian. Rest isn't the end game Even the resurrection of our bodies, that's not the end game if you're a Christian. The end game is joy in God's presence. Think about that. Joy in God's presence. Eternal pleasures at God's right hand. Being with God in such a way that you experience a kind of bliss that you've never experienced before. That's what we were created for, and that's where God's people are headed. You know, we could paint a picture of heaven, you know, beautiful scenery, streets of gold, mansions prepared by Jesus himself for God's people, lots of things to do and explore, the people of God with glorified, beautiful bodies, myriads of majestic angels. You can have all of that and you can take away God himself and you no longer have heaven. It's not the mansions, it's not the streets of gold, it's not the angels and the resurrected bodies that you and I truly long for. It's not what will satisfy us. It's God himself and pleasures that are at his right hand. Brothers and sisters, that is what God is keeping us for. Let's pray. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want to say some things to you as your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Do you have confidence that you will be in this place with God 
at the end of time? Do you have confidence and assurance that you will see Jesus face to face? And what is that confidence built on? Let me exhort you in these moments to repent of your sins, to trust Christ for your salvation. Trust him. Unite yourself to him. Make him your master in these moments of prayer. Find your contentment in him alone above all other things and commit to communing with him for the rest of your life. And if you do that this morning, you can have assurance that you will be with Jesus, enjoying his pleasures forever and ever. If you're a Christian this morning, let me address you. Are you loyal to God? Are there idols in your life? Do you find your contentment in other things other than God? And have you given yourself to daily fellowship with God? Take take a moment to pray and engage with God over these things. Father, you have made known to us, South Shore Baptist Church, the path of life. It's a path that's stained with the blood of Jesus. It's a path that we receive hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. You will fill us with joy in your presence one day as we look upon your face. We will experience eternal pleasures at your right hand one day because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we so long to be in that place. Father, thank you for keeping us. In your name we pray, amen.